Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies. I'm J.F. Martel. Today we continue our sporadic series focusing on the major trumps of the tarot. The trump for this episode is Arcanum 18, the moon. The image from the Marseille deck is particularly haunting. A crayfish lurks in a stagnant pool, while two animals bay at the Earth's satellite, which looms ominously between desolate towers and a wasteland. The moon, of course, has a human face. For some reason, no matter how hard I've tried, I've never been able to see the famous face in the moon. I used to see this as a personal failing. It made me wonder if I was perhaps pareidoliacally challenged, if that's a thing. I mean, incapable of normal pattern recognition. But now, having read the chapter on the moon in Meditations on the Tarot, a study we're continually drawing upon in this series, I'm actually a bit thankful for it. According to the anonymous author of that eldritch tome, the whole problem of modernity comes down to our great difficulty in unseeing the man in the moon, so to speak, after we've spotted him. The reason is that having decided that intelligence exists only in human heads, we end up jamming the entire universe into a human-shaped box. This is a key insight of the discussion you're about to listen to, but it takes us a bit of time to get there. There are lots of threads to disentangle. And there's Voltron and professional wrestling to discuss in the preamble. So I hope you'll bear with us as we attempt to grasp a symbol that may really only be grasped once you've acknowledged that it's ungraspable. As usual, our conversation will be punctuated with occasional music by my brother Pierre-Yves Martel, who recently released a full album of music composed for the podcast. You can stream the album, purchase a download, or pre-order the upcoming LP on Pierre-Yves' Bandcamp page. Just Google Weird Studies Bandcamp and you'll be there. All three of the cues I selected for today's episode are excerpts from longer pieces on the album. I'd be remiss if I didn't also mention our Patreon, which just this week welcomed its 600 supporter. Thank you, patrons. Your support means a lot to us. I also want to shout out the Weird Studies Discord server and subreddit, whose devoted mods do an excellent job of curating thoughtful conversations on a variety of topics. It's a good time to be weird. All right, on with episode 94, All is Mysterious, on the moon card in the tarot. do uh we should do an episode where where you're like hulk hogan and i'm macho man randy savage the whole oh, time yeah, that, would, that would be terrible <laughs> that would be unlistenable <laughs> i suspect that our imitations of noted professional wrestlers 
would leave much to be desired. <laughs> Speak for yourself. <laughs> I'm going to do macho man, Randy. <laughs> uh, oh, I that love guy. I, like I was, he was wound tight, that guy. He was my favorite. It's weird because whenever I had like any set of toys or cast or ensemble, you know, when you're a kid of characters, you always have your favorite. And right. I think that there's a structural constant. Like I would always go for one particular part of any ensemble structure. It's not the lead. I never, I thought it was lame to idolize the leader, right? Like, oh, my favorite mm. wrestler is Hulk Hogan. Well, yeah, no shit, yeah. you know. <laughs> it's like saying my favorite writer is William Shakespeare. Right. Um, yeah, so it may well be. <laughs> well, he but, might be the but best, but it, it can't be your favorite. You know, because he's kind of setting the table. It's like... Oh, I see. I see what you're you saying, know? yeah. So I always loved this one character that was off. It was the, the left shoulder of Voltron, is what I call that particular place in the structural construct. You know, uh, Macho Man Randy Savage for me was the left shoulder of Voltron. As opposed in, uh, to the right hand of the father. Right. In his seated shoulder on the right of shoulder of Voltron. <laughs> From there why, come. why that particular... Well, that body just part of that particular entity. That just happened to be my favorite lion in the Voltron. I don't know if you remember Voltron. You were probably a little old for really, I didn't really pay attention to it, so no. Voltron was a big giant robot made up of lions, of robotic lions. It's like I mean, typical. I knew that, that Voltron was formed up from other entities because I've always liked Method Man's expression for the magic of the Wu-Tang Clan. They form up like Voltron. Oh, right, right. So I find myself using that expression without having any clear idea of what it means. I didn't realize that there were like lions that came It was together. a beautiful toy. Uh, Voltron was like the, the lions, um, so you'd have each individual lion and they each had their color. And then they would come together and form this robot. Very cool. Um, back in the days of very well-designed toys. And so... Yeah, the left shoulder of Voltron just happened to be my favorite of the lions. It was identical to all the other ones except for the color. I think it was green. I'm, I might be totally misremembering here and people will correct me on it and they'll know I don't know my fucking Voltron from my from my Galdorak. Fake fan. But yeah, there's like a place in the structure that I, I would always go for that. Macho Man was a good guy, but he was a he was a bit of an asshole, but he was with the yeah. good guys at the time and he just stood in relation to Hulk Hogan. He was charming. Yeah. Macho Man Randy Savage was charming, which is not something you could say about every professional wrestler. Admittedly, it's a very peculiar sort of charm, but charm nonetheless. Yeah, very idiosyncratic sort of charm. <laughs> no, I see what you're saying. You Yeah, you can't say that your favorite Transformer is Voltron. You have to choose something a little bit more niche. Right. Um, so all of which is to say... Yes. Yeah. Randy Savage. But I think I would say Big Joe LaDuke. Right. Uh, he made something of a specialty of being pile driven on the cement floor. <laughs> he was really good, I think, at doing that trick, like where it looks like you got pile drived on the cement, but you didn't. Because yeah. if you did, you would have died. Yeah. <laughs> um, just like a big, beefy dude who... Had a lot of personality. Right. I got to see the man wrestle on a number of occasions. I feel like I was privileged to seeing that in much the same way. I feel privileged of having seen the Chicago Lyrics production of Die Valkyrie a couple of years ago with Eric Owen as Votan. Um, <laughs> that's probably the first time anybody has compared 
Big Joe LeDuc to Photon, but I feel like it sticks. Why not? I think Roland Barthes kind of beat us to it when it comes to mythologizing wrestling. and He totally got it. Yeah. Bart totally understood wrestling. Yeah. Oh, there's a funny passage in one of his books where he's talking about this. Um, the early book of essays that are very witty in French. I can't remember the I can't remember the title. It's sitting on my shelf, but not a shelf in my house, unfortunately. So I can't go and look it up. Um, Mythologie was the one. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. There you go. Where he's he's talking about like cheesy old Bible epics, like Cecil B. DeMille type sword and 40s, sandal, sword and sandal things, where he talks about like the Roman proconsul or whatever. You know, the Romans are always the bad guys, and he's talking about how funny it is to watch. Someone like Marlon Brando, some like beefy American actor pretending to be a Roman. Yeah. And he's like, oh, but he's got the little fringe of hair. So, you know, he's a Roman. Right. <laughs> <laughs> little token. He, yeah. 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 It's like, that's how signification works in professional wrestling. You have these totally conventionalized signs and those signs tell you what you need to know. Yeah. And yet there is a kind of complicated uh, semiotics that goes with that, which... It suddenly, I, I'm, I'm suddenly remembering that we're supposed to be recording a show on the moon card of <laughs> yeah. the tarot and suddenly realizing that all of this stuff about professional wrestling is totally beside the point. Um, but it was, uh, are we going to keep this? I feel like this was actually a fun conversation. Maybe we should keep this. In the, uh, we'll in try the, to fit in it in. Yeah, I would love to keep it. Yeah. Let's, okay, let's we'll, start we'll, we'll see what we can do. <laughs> I don't want to throw that out. That's for sure. Um, let's let's segue from professional wrestling to uh, the 18th arcane <laughs> To the yeah, moon card the moon. of the tarot. Um, so today we're continuing our ongoing series uh, in which we hope to, we, we will, we will cover all 22 major arcana of the uh, tarot in due time. And today, for reasons that neither of us really knows, we decided to do the moon. It just came up in our exchanges, and that's what we're doing next. And of course, as usual, we'll probably be talking about the card. We're probably going to be talking about that bizarro object that floats around our planet as well. I don't know. Yeah. You know, I was talking about the structural place that a particular unit in a set or ensemble occupies. And I think the moon is pretty much the one. The moon and the hermit are my favorite tarot cards to look at. And they, they're connected, right? Because the moon is number 18. Numerologically, one plus eight is nine. The ninth card is the hermit. Oh, it's a nice. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so it's a fascinating card. And we, we read the chapter on it from uh, Meditations on the Tarot, and it blew both of our minds. So I'm sure we'll be getting into that. And our minds have been blown repeatedly by this book, Meditations on the Tarot. Yeah. Actually written by a fellow named Valentin Tonberg, but who insisted that his name be struck from the book. And so out of respect, we're continuing to call him anonymous, even though anonymous, uh, yes. it is quite well known who wrote this book. He did a lot. I read his uh, Wikipedia page just to know a little bit more about him. I haven't, uh, I'm not well versed. It's quite a story. In, yeah. Came to Catholicism late in his esoteric career. He started off as an anthroposophist with Steiner and... He eventually broke away from that, then went into, I think- he Got interested in the Eastern Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox Church for a while. And then ended up as a Catholic, but bringing into Catholicism this tremendously rich knowledge of uh, esoteric science. And he just kind of synthesizes so many different things. For me, reading the 
meditations on the tarot was a great balm. As a Catholic who's also interested in in esotericism and the occult, uh, he kind of just brings it all together and ties it into a nice, beautiful bow that I really appreciate because a lot of the mm-hmm. antinomies that have been plaguing me throughout my life find a kind of weird resolution, even though they're not they're not resolved in a Hegelian sense where I finally not get the... No, they're just allowed to exist in this space of paradox and strangeness, which I really appreciate. The, the question of what the problem is in the first place is resolved. And amazingly... Anonymous resists the temptation to make that Hegelian move of sublation, the Aufhebung, to the higher level, where he talks about two principles of the human mind that will always, may always, he's scrupulously on the fence about this, but these are two functionings of the human that may never be reconciled, but he establishes the problem of their reconciliation, of their true unity as the problem for the spiritual seeker upon the path. Just to know exactly what are these two sides of these two irreconcilables? Well, we can use planetary symbolism to illustrate them. One is the, well, okay, it gets complicated here, one big problem of relying as much on meditations as we are probably going to in this conversation, the problem is that his understanding of what planetary symbolism of sun and moon stand for is almost 180 degrees opposite from the standard yes. understanding such that you might find in, for example, Colin Wilson's book, The Occult, which we did on a show some time ago. Now, in that... Wilson frames sun versus moon, solar versus lunar knowledge as the fundamental distinction to be made between those branches of human thought and practice he calls occult and those that belong to, I guess we would say science. So the sun is the conscious mind. The moon is the unconscious mind. The solar mind is particularly associated with masculinity. And the lunar mind particularly associated with femininity. So a lot of goddess current Magic like Wicca and neo-pagan goddess religion is very into the idea of the moon as the fundamental image of the knowledge for which these religious systems exist. Mm -hmm. And meditations doesn't do that. It's following something from Eliphas Levy, who insisted on the point that the thing about the moon is that it's reflecting light from the sun, that the sun is the true light of consciousness and the moon is in some ways the false light of consciousness. And that is almost a kind of reversal of the standard kind of uh, neo-pagan slash occult understanding of the moon, where we think of the moon as telling a certain kind of truth that is chased away by a kind of a, a solar cult. If we think back to mumbo jumbo, you can think about the solar cult of Aten becoming the seed of Atenism, which is this worldwide conspiracy to cage people in their bodies and constrain them to a purely intellectual understanding, which the forces of Jess Grew exist to undo, right? Mm -hmm. But for meditations, the moon, what it is, is it, it is a reflection And therefore, it's dependent upon the true light of the sun. And 
he ends up sort of saying that that reflected light of the moon is the light of reason, that that's the light of reason, light not, of intelligence. not the sun. Yeah. He uses yeah. the word intelligence, yeah. and we'll get to that. So that's a that's a threshold challenge, but it's a little bit like, you know, when we were talking about the Sandman and we were talking about the term unheimlich, and we were talking about how heimlich and unheimlich actually kind of mean the same thing. Yeah. One of those words that somehow reverses into its opposite and yet in its opposite retains something of the original meaning. I feel like something like that is going on with these two basic construals of the moon in occult symbology. Yes. Yes, I, I agree. At the deepest level, I think you can reconcile, let's say, Colin Wilson's or Ishmael Reed's contrasting of lunar and solar with what he's doing here. But they're just approaching the symbols differently. Certainly, traditionally, in the modern West, we tend to think of the moon as a symbol of the unconscious, of the feminine, of that which is hidden, concealed, of that which receives, of that which contains, as opposed to the solar, which is masculine, yang, projects. projects. But if you follow the symbology of the sun back to its roots, so I'm talking like in Plato's Republic, the simile of the sun, and then Plato as he took a lot of ideas from the Egyptians. The sun uh, was very much uh, beyond reason. The simile of the sun in Plato is that the sun is an analogical entity that points us to gnosis. And gnosis for Plato is beyond reason. It's this weird kind of like entrapment of the solar in the idea of rationalism, it goes hand in hand with the rise of humanism as the ultimate. So like what I'm saying is that the sun becomes rational once Platonism is abandoned. Well, once we get to a more thoroughgoingly enlightenment worldview, then, you know, if you're coming in with this occult idea of the sun as the light of gnosis, right? and gnosis in the Neoplatonic system or the Hermetic system, or the Christian mysticism that Anonymous is working with here, if what the sun ultimately stands for is true knowledge... Well, the idea of what constitutes true knowledge is revised yeah. from the 18th, from the really 17th century onwards, and we're still living in that epistem. And so then we say, well, scientific knowledge is the true knowledge, from which point of view, then we have to go looking for an opposite. Because if you're interested in spiritual matters, you know that that construal of the solar is not all there is. You right. know it leaves out some pretty major territories. So then it puts you in a kind of a countercultural situation. This is kind of an interesting thing. You know, Anton Fevre, the kind of godfather of esoteric studies – who, by the way, in one of the blurbs printed on the back of the book, refers to Meditations on the Tarot as the most beautiful and instructive book of the 20th century concerning Western esotericism. High praise from the guy who basically invented the field of esoteric studies. But anyway, Favre, one of the things he said when he was building his theory is saying what he doesn't think esoteric is. He says, I don't think it's countercultural. In other words, there's a built-in bias for people whose connection with occultism is strictly from Crowley and Blavatsky onwards, basically yeah. 20th and 21st century occultisms, then, yeah, it's very plausible to you that 
what makes the esoteric tradition is it standing in an adversarial relationship to a mainstream. Right. And it's easy to project that backwards through time because you're like, oh, yeah, and they burnt magicians at the stake. And so like magic was also against church hierarchy, against church doxa. And so it would be very easy to form the idea that magic is always the other of whatever dominant knowledge system exists. It's the minority culture that's always marginalized, always suppressed, and yet never entirely goes away. And Favre is trying to say, no, that's not essential to what esotericism is. I'm actually kind of on the fence because I do think there is something to be said for esotericism as what Walter Hanegraaff, another scholar of esoteric studies, calls rejected knowledge, that being something that kind of forms the tradition. But if we are living within a kind of enlightenment or post-enlightenment epistem where true knowledge, solar knowledge, is the knowledge of science, it's that wissenschaftlich knowledge. And you don't leave anything over for what we call spiritual or religious life. That is all relegated to superstition. Those are the shadows that the sun exists to chase away. Well, to put it in Jungian terms, that casts a shadow, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> then the sun really starts to cast a shadow. You need an opposite to that. It calls for an opposite. The pushing of all virtue onto a single symbol is going to result in a shadow to that symbol. And what better shadow than the moon, right? which it literally exists in shadows, right? That is an object of shadows and light. That's what makes the moon what it is for us in our experience is the pattern of shadow and light. It is the shadow side of the sun. And so it becomes very easy for us to come up with an idea of the moon that relies upon this basically countercultural or oppositional understanding of the esoteric. Right. Indeed, that oppositional understanding is practically unavoidable within the epistem of the modern. Yes. But it ain't necessarily so. Uh, Favre would say it ain't necessarily so. And I would tend to agree with him. We don't necessarily have to think of the moon as the opposite of the sun. It is possible to think of it as a reflection of the sun. Let's describe the card just so people can have an image of it in their minds as we continue. Yeah. The card in the Marseille deck, which is the one we're using here for reference, shows us a very complex moon in the sky. So there is a disc and within the disc, you see a crescent moon and then protruding from this crescent moon on the left side, you see the profile of a human face. Then you see all these rays 
that are the colors of the sun, if you go on to the, the following card is the sun card, you can see that, in fact, as uh, Anonymous points out, this is not a picture of the night, but an image of an eclipse. So the moon is eclipsing the sun. And then below, you have a barren landscape with two towers in the background facing each other. And in the middle ground, you have what's traditionally interpreted as a wolf and a dog howling at the moon. And then in the foreground, you have a pool of water, a stagnant water, with a crayfish visible in the pool. And, and often, the pool is, is clearly man-made, by the way. Yeah, in certain, not all the versions of the Marseille. Some of them, it looks natural. And some, the one I have here, it looks uh, shaped. But if you look at the, your, the version that Anonymous is working with, it's definitely shaped. Well, the one they put in the book. But if you look at the image on the cover, they have the moon on the cover. And there, it's a natural pool. You know, that's a good point. So, I haven't noticed. But I think that either way, you're being told this is a closed-in pool. Exactly. Um, it's, stagnant it, it's water. Stagnant water. And the crayfish is often described in books on the tarot as coming out of the water. So the card is often interpreted to signify ideas coming out of the unconscious, some nascent unconscious idea that's coming into being. But crayfish move backwards, of course. So this crayfish is actually moving if you're going to be strictly kind of physiological about it, it seems to be moving back into the water, receding. So that the image of the card is an image of reversal. It reminds me of the Black Lodge scenes from Twin Peaks, where everything's mm. filmed in reverse. Everything's mm. moving in reverse. The yods, which are these uh, drops um, uh, of uh, this, uh, these basically these spermatozoa, these, these basically sperms of God that come down and, and rain upon the earth, bringing meaning and value to things in esoteric tradition. In this particular card, the yods, so the rays of the divine light are moving back up towards the moon. They're not coming right. down as in the sun card. So there's this weird reversal that everything is going backwards, like rain is falling <laughs> upwards and the mm -hmm. crayfish is moving back into the pool. And so it's a card that has... In all of the guides I have is described basically as a negative card in the sense that it's a darkness. It's a, like a Crowley in the Book of Thoth writes, this is the waning moon, the moon of witchcraft and abominable deeds. She is the poisoned darkness, which is the condition of the rebirth of light. So basically the dark night of the soul is the traditional yeah. ascription. There's a, a connotation here of the moon in its the, the mutability, the inconstancy, the sh ever shiftingness, the shape shiftiness of the moon being a symbol for what is fluid, what is unknown, what is hidden, what is, you know, Hecate, the lunar goddesses that are associated with witchcraft and illusion and deception. So that side of it is very important, I think, both in Crowley and in Meditations on the Tarot. It's just that Meditations on the Tarot comes up with a very novel interpretation of how the lunar manifests in the modern world. But anyways, and of course you have this idea of traditional associations of the moon. So the moon in traditional astrology, in the traditional Ptolemaic system, the moon occupies the threshold between the sublunary world, of course, the evil world, the valley of tears in which we exist, and the supernal world, the Empyrean, the world beyond the moon, which has the planets and the sun and all the, the unchangeables. So the moon is kind of this, it, it has two faces, right? There's the dark side of the moon, which faces the side we can't see, and then there's the side of the moon that faces us. So the moon is a kind of guardian of the threshold. It's mercurial in that way. It belongs in two worlds. You also have that 
symbolized in the card in the form of the dog and the wolf. The dog is a domesticated wolf, right? So the dog is that part of us which we think we know. The wolf is that part of us which we don't know. They're both howling at the moon. They're both on display. Everything is broken into a duality, the two towers in the background. And the stagnant water, because there's no movement from this world. Once you get into that world of antinomies, of things opposing one another with no resolution possible, movement becomes impossible. So the moon is a, and the moon card is an image of stagnation or standstill Mm -hmm. or of incubation, which is a really, I guess a key word for me as I was thinking about this is incubation. Because in, in the ancient world, there was a whole tradition of incubation where people would go to these dream temples and they would lie there and the priests would administer certain rites and maybe even drugs. And then the uh, supplicant would lie down in this temple and then enter a a weird state of sleep, which there's a lot of theories about whether it was real sleep or a kind of trance state. And then they would get dreams and the dreams would inform their lives in various ways or heal sicknesses and stuff like that. And this was called incubation. A lot of the Neoplatonists got their crazy visions probably through the practice of incubation which is something that modern philosophers have completely forgotten uh, was a, a major component of ancient philosophy was these practices that would enable one to access altered states of consciousness. But in the incubation, everything comes to a standstill and things start to move backwards, like in the Black mm. Lodge. Starts, things move in a crab-like, bizarre, irrational way. And the moon comes to symbolize that whole kind of zone that human consciousness can enter. And what's so strange about Anonymous is that he then describes modern rationalist thinking in terms of such a form of kind of uh, witchcraft or he calls it voodoo. Um, Yeah, which uh, I kind of wish he didn't do because it actually – it's one of the few times where I'm like, dude, you don't know what you're talking about. Well, maybe he does. But anyways, yeah. I don't think he knows what voodoo is, but whatever. It's fine. Not to dwell on the point. (laughs) Um. Yeah, he's looking at this form of what is in other occult traditions called solar knowledge. He's looking at that kind of knowledge, yeah, as a kind of witchcraft, certainly as something that is unreliable, that captures us, confines us as the crayfish is confined in this little man-made pool. Well, I think it's man-made. We are confined in a world of our own construction, something geometrical, but imposed on the world. And... One of the things that Anonymous emphasizes is that this point of view, this form of mental functioning, the intellectual, is incapable of creation. It can't make anything that isn't already there. Yeah. And it always tends towards immobility. So whereas the other capacity, intuition... It is the form of life itself. It is responsive to life. It, it kind of is life. For anonymous, intellect is a kind of a domain of unlife. Not death exactly, but the opposite of life, not this progressive evolving force of the new, but something that's static or moves backwards that is incapable of creation And that needs to assume immobility and changelessness in order to gain any purchase on the world at all. 
Yes. He, he's drawing on Bergson here heavily um, yes. in, in the chapter, and he has long quoted passages from Bergson's Creative Evolution, in which Bergson lays out his theory of intelligence versus intuition. And, and for Bergson, intelligence is exactly that. It moves backwards. So when we think in terms of intelligence, we are always moving from effect back to cause constantly, so that the world appears precisely inverted looked at through the eyes of intelligence. You look at a situation and you try to find out how it came about. So you're always moving back in time. Right. You're breaking up simple gestures, simple transformations into multi-staged changes. And of course, the opposite of intelligence for Bergson is not intuition, but instinct. Yeah, there's one part in this book where Anonymous calls, uh, he's talking about a Bergsonian yoga and I yes. really like that because of all philo modern philosophers, Bergson for me exemplifies most strongly the reading of philosophy as a kind of spiritual practice. Bergson is constantly asking you to engage in really difficult exercises as you're reading his texts. These are not texts you just read and leave aside. These are texts that show you a kind of practice. And in order to understand Bergson, you know, which people like... Um, uh, Bertrand Russell were unable to do, you need to do the work. As you read the text, yeah. you need to be able to kind of live through what he's describing. Yes. And one example that might be helpful to understand the distinction between instinct and intelligence is to think of beavers, right? Like beavers build really amazing dams and, and dens. And they do this in much the same way as humans build houses. They cut down trees, they arrange them, and blah, blah. and the goal is to have uh, either to dam up a river where they can build a den and basically catch fish, which is insanely complicated as a thought for an animal to have, or if they're thinking of a den in which they can raise their young. So, of course, we're always like, well, how do they know? Like, do they have this plan? Like, we're going to build a dam, and first we're going to cut trees, and we're going to... And of course, they don't need that because what to us with our intelligence looks like a whole complex series of movements for them is as simple as taking a step forward. The yeah. entire operation from felling the trees to nesting inside the completed den is one thing at the level mm -hmm. of instinct. It's the intelligence that breaks up the simple into multiple parts. Yeah. And that's what intelligence does. For Bergson, intelligence is a knife that cuts up simple things into many things. So the operation of dam building among beavers becomes really, really complex from the point of view of intelligence. Whereas for the beaver, it's just a, the entire process is one thing. And people will be like, well, how do you know that's how beavers think? Well, Bergson says, because that's how we think too. Beneath our intelligence, we can all access this instinctive knowledge. And yeah. once we've been able to marry intelligence and instinct, we have what Bergson calls intuition, which is a positively esoteric mode of knowing, gnosis, that Bergson describes in his work. And that has to do with the development of sympathy and of immediate knowing. You can immediately know really complicated things without having to think them through. That's what Bergson is saying. And that's what Anonymous is saying. So that's the kind of antinomy there between intelligence and instinct. And for Anonymous, the moon card is showing us the intelligence part of that equation, the reflective light of consciousness, the part of intelligence that has to do with turning around and looking at things backwards so that we can break them up into parts. That's the lunar mode of consciousness for Anonymous. The sun is the simple, moving, creative movement towards something that is already always known as a kind of gnosis. And that's more in keeping with the Platonic philosophy from which all of Western esotericism draws than the modern 
Wilsonian lunar versus polar take, which is a more historically circumscribed way of looking at the, at right. the problem. Now, that being said, I think towards the end of this chapter, Anonymous shows some affinity with that more positive view of the moon, the idea of the moon as the figure for instinct and intuition. I'm sorry, I tend to conflate those two terms, but it's useful for me to remember that intuition is Erickson's idea of the marriage of instinct and intellect. Yeah. And he, yeah. he relates it to the idea of death from the Kabbalah, which is a mode of knowing that is beyond uh, artistic knowing and, and romantic knowing. Anyways, erotic knowing. There's this other form of knowing that only the Kabbalist can achieve, which is death. And he relates that to Bergson's idea of intuition. So it's the same right. thing. Right. Right. It does seem to me that he introduces one complexity that allows the moon to continue to be a figure of instinct and perhaps intuition. Which, when you think about it, it's pretty hard to write that out of what the moon means because think about just the simplest thing about the moon is that it has lit the way of human beings for most of human existence. We forget about this because, of course, we have our own light now. But the cycles of the moon at one point had serious implications for how you're living your day to day because a full moon, you could actually do stuff outside. And when the moon is completely occluded, you, you can't. It's really dark. But when you have a full moon, you can see things. Clearly enough, you can walk around and do stuff outdoors. It's the same landscape that you see in the sun, but everything is transformed. Right. The shadows are so deep and mm -hmm. mysterious and cast solid forms in strange liquid shapes. And the world viewed in the light of the moon is very much a figure for esoteric knowledge, the world viewed under the aspect of lunar knowledge, where it's like it's the same, but totally transmogrified and spookier. But there's nothing anti-occult or non-esoteric about intelligence. Intelligence for him is right. at the heart of esoteric knowledge. Um, yes. I mean, the Kabbalah is certainly... And, and as, uh, um, yeah, it's an intellectual of, system. Uh, it's an intellectual system. So yeah. it's not so much saying that intelligence is bad, which is one of the one of the dangers is, of getting into yeah. Bergson is you end up thinking, oh, intelligence yeah. is bad, instinct is good. Uh, and well, it's, it's also the, the danger of getting into occultism because so often people who are into this shit are disabused rationalists, people who right. have reached the limits of that worldview and – the most human thing in the world is to run in the opposite direction and embrace intuition and instinct and to degrade the human intellect. But the whole point of Anonymous's scheme here, his Kabbalistic sort of inspired scheme, is the idea that we're engaged in a practice, a philosophical practice, a doing – by which we try to integrate these two things. Yes. So, But the point that I wanted to make, though, in bringing up the fact that any way you slice it, the moon still offers itself as a figure for the other side of human functioning, a kind of occluded side. I think Anonymous holds on to that as well because he makes a big deal of the fact that in the Marseille deck, it's not the moon 
pure and simple. It's the face in the moon. It's a face that actually obscures the moon. So you have like the right. sun obscured by the moon, but the moon obscured by a human face. Right. And also the moon as the agent of an eclipse, as opposed to just the moon on its own. So right. it's this card is not a symbol of the moon as such. It's a very particular moon. Like for Crowley, it's the waning moon. It's not the full moon. The, the moon card is not the whole moon for Crowley. It's the waning moon. It's the movement into dark. It's a particular aspect of the moon. Whereas I think similarly for Anonymous, the moon card is a symbol of eclipse and a symbol of, uh, of the, the human face in the moon, of course, represents the fact that this is a mode where everywhere you see, you just see yourself reflected back at you. There's no transcendence anymore because the moon is standing in the way of the sun. Right. But again, I'll go back to the idea of incubation. Implicit throughout his chapter, and certainly in Crowley, Crowley makes this very, very clear, is that the moment of eclipse where the moon eclipses the sun, where intelligence eclipses uh, instinct, the moment of eclipse is a dark time, right? In the New Testament, when Jesus is crucified, it says darkness fell at noon. From noon to three o'clock in the afternoon, it was dark. So people are like, well, was there an eclipse? Well, it turns out it's impossible that there was a solar eclipse because it was Passover and Passover happens on the full moon. And when there's a full moon, there can't be an eclipse because the moon's on the wrong side of the sky. But anyways, right. um, the idea is that when the sun and the moon meet, it is a time of darkness. It is the hardest test, as Crowley says. It's the dark night of the soul, but it is necessary. It's the incubation of the next card, which is the sun which the sun represents the birth of the new principle, whether the Christic principle or the Horus principle in Egyptian. Um, it's the moon and the sun enter into an eclipse and that darkness makes possible something completely new. It's a process-oriented thing that he's talking about, where yep. it's not just a condemnation of intelligence, but rather a call to remember that intelligence is countered in us by instinct and it calls us to produce out of that the new sun of intuition, this new way of seeing. And so it's not a negative card in that sense. It's ultimately a positive card. And Crowley has exactly the same interpretation. And Jung uh, in Mysterium Conjunctionis talks about the moon in precisely those terms. He really focuses on the duality or the ambivalence of the moon. Like he has one quote, the bride is not only lovely and innocent, but witch-like and terrible like the side of Cellini that is related to Hecate. So I always say Hecate, not Hecate. I, I like Hecate. Sounds cool. Um, in another part, he talks about the moon. He says, the prima materia, which he relates to the moon. So he's talking, Jung is talking about alchemy here. The prima materia is the prime matter, the prime matter of the waters in Genesis that the spirit of God kind of floats over. It says the prima materia is the moon, the mother of all things, the vessel, it consists of opposites, has a thousand names, is an old woman and a whore. As mater alchemis, it is wisdom and teaches wisdom. It contains the elixir of life in potentia and is the mother of the savior and of the filius macrocosmi, which means the son of the macrocosm, the Christ, the new being. It is the earth and the serpent hidden in the earth, the blackness and the dew and the miraculous water, which brings together all that is divided. The water is therefore called mother, quote, my mother who is my enemy, 
but also gathers all my divided and scattered limbs. So this image of ambivalence, duality, of transformation, of jumping into the completely unknown in order to be transformed, all this is kind of part of the lunar symbology that I think Anonymous also recognizes, although the emphasis is in a different place in his chapter. Yeah, I like, you know, I like what you're saying. The, the ambivalence of the moon, the two-sidedness, that is something that just seems to be a deep part of what the moon is. The philosophical seeming incoherence between Anonymous's take on the moon and the better known kind of neo-pagan idea of the moon standing in opposition to the sun, the lunar in opposition to the solar, that kind of contradiction itself seems to be something that we get involved with when we are in the domain of the moon. Right. And and it's all very confusing. You When you are walking the path of the moon, a lot of moon cards and later tarot decks show a path that leads between the baying animals and the two distant towers. And a lot of people think of the moon as a pathway card. Yes. A card that, like the fool card, intimates a passage through a space along a path. And this path, however, is a path beset by illusions and snares and dangers. It's a path of dreams, you know, the way you get lost in your dreams every night, because it's very seldom that you ever think in the midst of a dream, oh, hey, I'm dreaming. As Anonymous says, the intellect is present in dreams, but it is at its most passive. And it's in that condition that we walk the path of the moon, beset on all sides by illusions and images. And it's unclear what side of things we should take. I mean, think about what face the moon presents to us almost every night, except when it's completely occluded or when it's completely full, we see a pattern of light and darkness. Light and shade. But even when it's full, you know, as Jung said, when it shows us its full radiance, there's another side of it that's in complete darkness. Yes. So, so the, the moon the, is, yes. Yeah. which is why yes. the face, the face on the cards in profile, you're only seeing half the face. It's like the goddess yeah. Hell in uh, Norse mythology, yes. whose yes. face is split down the middle between total darkness and total light. She's yeah. like the half moon. When the moon is half full, you're seeing the most, I guess, the most accurate or complete picture in the sense that you're seeing how it exists in these two worlds at the same time.
Well, Crowley has a wonderful and almost Lovecraftian passage describing what it is to tread that path. And he says, this path is guarded by taboo. She is uncleanliness and sorcery. Upon the hills are the black towers of nameless mystery, of horror and of fear. All prejudice, all superstition, dead tradition and ancestral loathing all combine to darken her face before the eyes of men. It needs unconquerable courage to begin to tread this path. Here is a weird, deceptive life. The fiery sense is balked. The moon has no air. The knight upon this quest has to rely on the three lower senses, touch, taste, and smell. Such light as there may be is deadlier than darkness, and the silence is wounded by the howling of wild beasts. And I'm going to skip over some stuff and just jump to the end. He really is leaning on the idea of the moon as a path of terrors and deceptions and illusions and so on, being lost in illusions. But... He doesn't want to say that this is bad. And that's part of the ambiguity of the moon, that if you do accept the darker side of the moon as primary the way Crowley does, I don't think you have to, but if you do, then the ambiguity is still there because then you have to turn around and say, and yet this is good. Yeah. It's good that this is a weird, deceptive life. And what Crowley says at the end, he explicitly links this card with the dark night of the soul. And then says, but the best men, the true men, do not consider the matter in such terms at all. Whatever horrors may afflict the soul, whatever abominations may excite the loathing of the heart, whatever terrors may assail the mind, the answer is the same at every stage. How splendid the adventure. That in itself is a kind of lunatic thing to say, right? That in the midst of absolute horror, where all I was just listening to an interview with Peter Kingsley, who whose catafalque I finally finished a couple of nights ago, Phil, just so you know, I, I got to the end of it. Did um, you enjoy it? I did. I did. I think, um, yeah, that's a whole other topic. That's a whole other topic. Yeah, we'll get back to that at some point. But K- Kingsley is talking about his own journey writing this book. And uh, Kingsley is making a claim in his work to be like Empedocles and Parmenides, the two pre-Socratics that he really kind of adores, uh, they are his primary teachers, he makes a claim to be a kind of mystical thinker himself. And um, in this interview, Kingsley is talking about his own journey writing Catafalque. And he says that in order to write this book, he had to descend into what Jung in the Red Book calls the spirit of the depths. He had to listen to the spirit of the depths, which is opposed in Jung's secret cosmology in the Red Book, opposed to the spirit of this time. So we are always ensconced in the spirit of this time, which is a particularly historically contrived take on existence. And then we interpret everything in terms of the spirit of this time, including lunar and solar. So in Wilson, lunar is like rebellious and Dionysiac and and mm-hmm. and solar is oppressive and authoritarian. But for Jung, this is like the spirit of this time. That's how it looks like from here. But when right. you descend into the spirit of the depths, the depths undoes your certainties. And Kingsley in the interview says, you don't understand. It really does undo all of your certainties. Nothing is saved. It destroys everything you thought was true, no matter what it is. It completely undoes you as a psychic entity that can think. It just completely tears you to pieces. And there's no way out. There's no right answer. You just have to go through it. And so that's a little bit what Crowley's getting at. But to embrace something like that, 
to say as a mystic, as a thinker, as a spiritual person to accept that level of dismemberment, that degree of self-destruction is you need to be a little crazy to go there. As Kingsley says, yes. like, no one would ever want to go there. You don't go there unless you're forced to. Uh, and yep. so that's what Crowley's getting at. But at the same time, you have to say how splendid the adventure, because if that's yep. where you need to go, then that's where you need to go. And that's the part of the moon I think that, that is. We need to recognize that the moon does symbolize uh, over and above or below, I guess, Anonymous's particular take on it in the context of his book does symbolize that process of disintegration and sinking yep. into unknowing, of descending into hell, of the dark night of the soul. And people say that flippantly. They don't realize that a dark night of the soul really undoes everything. It, it's yep. not, it doesn't spare any parts. It's a complete destruction of everything you thought was good and right and true. And yes. um, if that's, a, as Crowley says, a condition of rebirth, then that's a pretty daunting <laughs> prospect, right? Yeah. You know, in the Discord... Like there's a now a fan run Discord of Weird Studies fans, which is a lively, lively community. I'm into it. I'm, oh, yeah. I'm here for it. Fantastic. Uh, there was an interesting, just a discussion about something you and I have done on the show a number of times, which is to warn people about this territory. Right. And I've always said that as an educator, I feel like you have to be upfront with people about dangers. And the problem is, is there's no informed consent to awakening. There's no informed consent to meditation, certainly. There's no informed consent to magic. There's no informed consent to any path that we might call a true path of illumination. Because you can't know, even if somebody was standing there telling you exactly what was going to happen to you, which by the way is impossible, because only you can walk your path, right? right. Like you, there are certain features that are going to be the same for everybody, but the way it manifests in your life is going to be absolutely singular. So nobody can tell you what it's going to be like, what your experience is going to be. But even if they did, you wouldn't understand it. Even if someone were to tell you in minute detail what the dark night of the soul is, and there's books about it. Like, for example, The Dark Knight of the Soul yeah. by St. John of the Cross, to right. name but one. It's still, it's not going to mean anything to you because you don't know what it's like until you're in it. Right. And so there's no informed consent to the stuff. And if you really want to be a spiritual person, like that sounds nice. Like you're going to have some crystals and a nice Tibetan bell that you ring when you meditate and you're going to look like one of those pretty blonde ladies on the cover of Time magazine when they do an article about meditation. No, it's not like that at all. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, it can be rough and brutal. You know, I agree with Crowley. You know, how wonderful is this adventure? It's the most wonderful adventure and I wouldn't give it away for anything. And yet... Would I then just blithely tell someone else, oh, yeah, you should do that too? No, because you're asking them to shoulder a huge burden that they can't understand at the front end. The only way through it is with a certain kind of faith in the sense of fides, like a certain sense of a trust. grounding yeah. in, yeah, trust that somehow it's going to make sense. Uh, trust in your vow if you've made some kind of formal promise in a religious order, like the Bodhisattva vow or holy orders or what have you. Without that kind of grounding, chances are you will get lost and stay lost. 
which is a rough scene. Right. What I take Kingsley to be saying is there is no guarantee that you're actually going to make it through that. Now, and am I going to encourage people to do that? No. But at the same time, I'm also going to say, but there can be nothing more valuable. And sometimes the dark night is thrust upon you as when you, know, you suffer a terrible personal tragedy and somebody very close to you dies untimely. These are the very greatest arcana of human existence. There could be nothing more important than learning how to stare into those abysses and not lose your mind. They could teach you to walk into those abysses and come out the other side. There could be nothing more important. And yet, in order to establish how important it is, we also have to establish how dangerous it is and just what's at stake if you don't make it. Do you see what I'm saying? So oh, my answer to those people who are like, hey, why are you always bagging on magic when you yourself are kind of magical type dudes? We're not bagging on it. We're just telling you it's dangerous, unfortunately, like everything else valuable in life, like love. Yeah. We're swimming. <laughs> We're swimming. Your chances of dying are <laughs> extremely high while you're swimming. I mean, compared to just like the rest of your life, if yeah. we're talking probabilities. Yeah. Plus, you can't learn swimming from reading about swimming. You got to swim. And the minute you're swimming, you're statistically speaking, your chances of dying are very, very high. So, I mean, it's just the same type of thing, right? I mean, that's kind of making it a little bit banal maybe. But I think that that ambivalence uh, of the spiritual path becomes amply clear when we move from the star, Arcanum 17, to the moon, Arcanum 18, on our way to the sun, Arcanum 19. Yeah. And th this brings me to an important piece that uh, Anonymous brings, which is that... The problem with us, and I would say that this problem exists even in the esoteric community, I think you're touching on that problem now, is that there's an overly intellectual approach to these things. Like magic is just something else you do. I choose to be a, a science-minded person. I choose to be a magic-minded person, as though the qualitative difference between these two paths aren't completely, like astronomically big. Right. The stakes completely change from one to the other. So you can't, particularly the kind of bad lunar intellectualism that puts everything on a level and looks at all these, like in the Taylor, like Charles Taylor's way of looking at the imminent frame and all these religions exist alongside one another. And you just kind of choose the one that gives you the most meaning. But each choice you make embarks you or commits you to a worldview that completely shifts everything. It, 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 the, the, the idea of the banquet with all these options laid out disappears the minute you choose one of them, right? It's like yeah. if you take on the Bodhisattva vow, you're in Buddhism, you're inside that world and you're, all your references change accordingly. But my point was that, let me try to get back to my point. What Anonymous is saying is that we have an impoverished notion of what is going on in consciousness. So there's a, an important moment in the chapter where he breaks down the three types of light that bathe consciousness. So he says on page yeah 495, now human consciousness is the field where three kinds of light are manifest, creative light, reflective light, and revealed light. The first that's creative light, participates in the work of creation of the world, such as it has continued since the sixth day of creation, which we now call creative evolution. Here is being a Bergsonian. The second light, that's reflective light, illuminates the dark field of action of the human will, which we now call matter. The last orientates us toward 
transcendent values and truths which constitute, as it were, the supreme court of appeal, the ultimate criterion of all that is of worth and of all that is true in time and space. Point being that, so there's three types of light and we tend to just see one because we live in this lunar, in that sense, age, we tend to forget creative evolution and Bergson's whole philosophy was to get us back in touch with how to think and to live and to exist in this world is to create. Everything is being created in the moment. The act of creation didn't end on the sixth day. We're still on the sixth day. We're still in that right. moment where the world is creating itself. And we lose track of that. We lose our sight of that. And we also lose sight of the revealed light, which is the fact that we live in a fundamentally moral universe. That's one of the keynotes of his book. It's that yeah. the knowledge of good and evil was the first knowledge we were given. What it means is that there are values that we cannot explain intellectually, but that guide us. For instance, even if you want to be a secular humanist and you value knowledge above all things, it is because you believe knowledge is a good, but you can't rationalize why knowledge is a good. You have to realize on some level that the good, the true, the good, and the beautiful, you know, the three transcendentals are not something that we, we don't rationalize these things into being. They need to be already, always already given to us before anything can begin. So in that trifold kind of way of looking at consciousness, the universe looks completely different. And I think that uh, that's an important thing to keep in mind when you're trying to get into what the tarot is telling us about the moon, the sun and the stars. Like without the revealed light, then there would be no point in going through the dark side of the moon. You need the idea that there's some kind of telos, some kind of point to existence that's guiding you that would justify that journey into darkness that would make the adventure splendid no matter how dark it gets like frodo and mordor you know there are more yeah. moments in mordor where frodo is like this is the worst like there's nothing worse than this i mean this they have sucks. no food and nothing left <laughs> sam is carrying him it's just horrible but it's worth it because of the revealed light because of what lies at the telos at the edge of things So I want to jump back to something I left hanging a while ago, which is what does it mean that there's a big old face in the moon? 
Right. And we talked a little bit about it. You made the very good point that it's a face in profile. So you're seeing one half of a face and the duality of this card that's thematized everywhere in this card is also thematized in the, the face that you see in the moon. But Anonymous makes some interesting points about forms of knowledge, theories, schools of thought that Colin Wilson would call solar or that Ishmael Reed would call atonist. Marxism or Freudianism. He includes Nietzsche, Nietzsche. as well, the a three, figure. The three masters of suspicion. The, the masters of suspicion, according yes. According to Paul Ricard, yeah, right. Yeah. And hold on for a second. I want to find a passage. So what he's saying basically is like, you're talking about the sort of a transcendent, something transcendent in the situation, the thing to which we're all headed. The true, the good, the beautiful is things that are given that are always prior to human conduct, not something that can be reasoned out of human conduct. Right. And Anonymous is talking about those systems of thought associated with the masters of suspicion that do indeed presume there is nothing outside the human, the things that determine human life. So morality, for example, is a human construct. And we associate that with Nietzsche and, of course, with Michel Foucault, who reinterpreted Nietzsche. And we have the idea in Marx that what determines the way human beings get along with one another and what constitutes the meaning of a human life is given by political economy. And likewise, the idea of Freud's that it's pleasure and sexual pleasure that is determining everything that we do and everything we are. Let's see... Tunberg writes, one begins to see and to expect only the projection of the primary and elementary impulses of human nature. And he says, when one begins to see, in other words, in the development of human thought in a secular post-Enlightenment age, to use Taylor's philosophical language, it's the world of exclusive humanism, the world of morality and aesthetics and all of those things that are not easily captured by reason that nevertheless are kind of forced into an imminent frame where they have to be understood and justified in terms of things in the imminent frame. So for example, be nice to other people because it's good for your cardiovascular health, Right. which was the point of that little placard that I sent you a photo of. Anonymous writes, one begins to see under these circumstances and to expect only the projection of the primary and elementary impulses of human nature, pleasure, Freud, will to power, Nietzsche, material and economic concerns, Marx. The projection of the terrestrial element of human nature onto the nocturnal luminary, i.e. moral consciousness, causes its eclipse. One no longer sees anything worthwhile and one also no longer expects anything worthwhile. The eclipse moon with the human face instead of reflected solar light. So you see here he's making the shift. It's not just that the moon is imperfect because it can only present reflected light. He's saying it's the human face instead of that light. Right. It's it's like the light the of moon. intelligence instead of the revealed light. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. The arid plain with two towers and with a dog and a wolf howling from below, the pond with stagnant water geometrically enclosed and shielding the crayfish. Doesn't the totality of this image at first evoke troubling feelings and then disquieting ideas relating to a far-reaching operation of Vodou magic whose victim is human intelligence? And he talks about how 
in Kant, you know, you will find only the face of a man instead of the pure light of cosmic objective truth. Right. And he talks about other philosophers like Schopenhauer who begin to suspect that something very bad is happening in philosophy as we are leaving out the other side of the human, yeah. the instinctive side. A couple of pages later in 521, he pivots to sort of make a point that what happens when we make this operation of moving to an exclusively humanist frame is that we are never talking about truth anymore, but only the motivations people have for saying their little falsehoods. Uh, and he says, thus, instead of asking if this or that thesis is true, intelligence comes to occupy itself with psychological motives hidden behind the so-called game of rationalization, fashioning intellectual superstructures. It projects the face of man on the moon and sees there only this face. And I'm reading this, and I'm like, he's right. Yeah. And we have talked about this so many times on this show. It's one of our big themes, the absolute limitations placed on human thought by an attempt to understand everything in terms of the imminent frame. It was like we, we've given up on the idea that we can actually understand human utterances and human doings in terms of their truth and have contented ourselves with the aims of what we are pleased to call critique. Yeah. Which is just finding like what are the shitty base human impulses people had for saying or doing whatever they did. The instrumentalization of the ad hominem. Yes. Basically, it's the genetic fallacy raised to the level of a, an axiomatic a cosmological truth. principle. So yeah. if someone tells you something, it's like, oh, you would say that because you're like this. And this is something that, I mean, I think that even we fall for that all the time. Absolutely. It's, it's, a, it's a basic component of the modern construal is that since nobody knows, then anything anyone ever says, especially if they insist it's true, is wrong because all they're showing us is their own motivations, their own psychology, which you wonder where the post-truth era comes from. <laughs> you know, you wonder where Donald Trump becomes possible or the complete inanities that you see on both the left and right these days with the, the people just receding into their little shells, like crayfish sinking back into their little ponds. <laughs> well, then you have it right there. I mean, yeah. the umbilical cord was cut in the 19th century. It was already pretty damaged. And so we are left in a world without truth. And one of the big <laughs> uh, challenges for me reading, I'm reading, a, I don't know how to pronounce his name, Algis Uzdavinis. Uh, philosophy is a right of rebirth, where he makes a very compelling case for the existence of a kind of perennial wisdom that came to the Greeks from Egypt, from Africa. And just to entertain that possibility for a minute, that not only is it possible to know the truth, but that some people have known it and have transmitted yeah. it. It's it's uncomfortable, but in a way, it's kind of what we need to believe again, you know? And in a sense, it's yeah. weird because we, we betray ourselves all the time. Like you're a Buddhist, so you believe the Dharma is a revealed truth, right? Yeah. It's not yes, just it's not just a relative truth, it's a truth. And the mm -hmm. Dharma and the Tao and uh, the Logos, I would argue in the West, it's the same truth. These aren't relative truth. These aren't things you can opt in or out of. It's given. And all... Uh, paths of knowledge presuppose it if they're going to be paths of knowledge at all, as opposed to just manifestations of psychological desire, right? Right. If there's going to be a point to it, then we need to believe that wisdom is possible. 
the gnosis is possible. And so it, it <laughs> immediately moves us away from the kind of a lot of the um, the basic tenets of a modern construal of reality. And that's not to say that it abandons modernity. I just think, once again, as we've said before, it's not the fact that we're modern that's the problem. It's the fact that we're not modern enough. We don't see that we've already elevated ourselves to the level of a transcendent truth. So if we can put our face on the moon, it's because we have assumed that we are the transcendental principle, that we are supernatural. And that's not even wrong. It's just half the truth, half the story. And uh, the tradition of Gnosticism, the tradition of the esoteric, the the hermeticism, all these strands that exist in the West and have their Eastern versions as well are constantly reminding us not just of our own divinity as humans, but of the divinity of the other, the absolute divinity of the other. And that's an important part of it. And I think that ultimately, I mean, I think I don't want to, I don't want to sound like I'm proselytizing or evangelizing, but I think that at some point we're going to have to realize as a species that this is the case that maybe our best thoughts are way behind us. Maybe they're very ancient thoughts and that we need to at least, as Kingsley says, go into the deep primeval past and bring back the past, listen to the dead, bring what has been lost back into being. Maybe we have to move from a science fiction mode to a fantasy mode. Fantasy is always about what's been lost, what has been forgotten and shouldn't have been. Maybe there's a Mm -hmm. great act of anamnesis we need to uh, start thinking about. Well, you know, from that point of view, the moon card tells us of that path. Yeah. That path, that treacherous path beset by illusion and madness is the path that we need to walk in order to, and, and I think Anonymous puts this pretty explicitly, that is the path we need to walk in order to improve our condition, to move past this point where we live in a world where everywhere we look, we see only our own face reflected back at us, where the whole universe becomes a kind of solipsistic prison where we can't see anything in the world except our own little lusts and resentments staring back at us, that in order to move beyond that, to triumph over the face in the moon. We have to walk that treacherous path. And yet that path is just as treacherous as we've been making it out to be both in this show and in other shows. So you got to walk this path and this path will never be safe for you. So what now? If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, visit the Weird Studies subreddit, and of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel, and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening. <laughs>